Good afternoon and welcome to the 221st of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. Today is a discussion of COVID-19 in South Africa and the Lockdown Diaries Project with Fiona Anciano. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. A programming note, today's a special COVID calls being held at 5 p.m. Korea time. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 16th, 2021, there are 2,407,921 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 486,321 deaths reported in the United States, and in South Africa, there have been 47,899 deaths reported due to COVID-19. The way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Li Wenlang died on February 7th, 2020, and this appeared in The Economist magazine on February 15th, 2020, just a year ago. Busy though he was as an ophthalmologist at Wuhan Central Hospital, rushed off his feet, Li Wenlang never missed a chance to chat about his favorite things on Weibo. Food in particular, Japanese food with lashings of wasabi, plates of steaming beef noodles, the Hai de Lao hot pot restaurants that had kept him going when he spent three years in Jemen just after his medical training, and fried chicken. The drumsticks at the railway station were the best, and he never missed a chance to grab some when he was there. But then the chicken at Dico's fast food was so delicious that he just had to compliment the chef. A big basket of that, washed down with a Coke, was the peak of his existence. He was a husband now, and a father, secure in a stable profession, a man of weight. That had been his aim since his schoolboy days, when he decided to leave industrial Lianang in the Northeast, where his parents were unemployed, and go to college in the South. At Wuhan Central, the pay was bad and the hours punishing, but as long as his patients were satisfied, he was happy. Egg pancakes, that wonderful dopamine hit on his tongue, got him through the grim night shifts. Since he shared every passing observation online, it was not surprising that on December 30th, he put on a post about an odd cluster of pneumonia cases at the hospital. They were unexplained, but the patients were in quarantine, and they had all worked in the same place, the pungent, litter-strewn warren of stalls that made up the local seafood market. Immediately, this looked like person-to-person -person transmission to him, even if it might have come initially from bats or some other delicacy. Immediately, too, it raised the specter of the SARS virus of 2002-2003, which had killed more than 700 people. He therefore decided to warn his private WeChat group, all fellow alumni from Wuhan University, to take precautions. He headed the post, seven cases of SARS in the Huanan wholesale seafood market. That was his mistake. The trouble was that he did not know whether it was actually SARS. He posted it too fast. In an hour, he corrected it, explaining that although it was a coronavirus like SARS, it had not been identified yet. But to his horror, he was too late. His first post had already gone viral, with his name and occupation undeleted, so that in the middle of the night, he was called in for a dressing down at the hospital. And January 3rd, 2020, he was summoned to the police station. There, he was accused of spreading rumors and subverting the social order. He then had to give written answers to two questions. In the future, could he stop his illegal activities? I can, he wrote, and put his thumbprint in red ink on his answer. Did he understand that if he went on, he would be punished under the law? 
I understand, he wrote, and supplied another thumbprint. His birthday resolution, posted on Weibo, had been to be a simple person, refusing to let the world's complications bother him. So much for that. At least he had not been detained, which would have consumed his family with worry. At least his license to practice had not been revoked. In fact, he had not even been fined. Yet, why should he have been? He had been right to raise the alarm. The authorities were still denying that there was human-to-human -human transmission, and that was just statement of a journalist who had been sacked for asking about lack of safety on the line. The truth mattered. Public safety mattered. Public power should not be used for excessive interference. In this turmoil, though silent as promised, he went back to work, and then he was careless again. On January 8, 2020, an 82-year-old patient presented with acute angle closure glaucoma, and because she had no fever, he treated her without a mask. She too turned out to run a stall in the market, and she had other odd symptoms, including loss of appetite and pulmonary lesions, suggesting viral pneumonia. It was the new virus, and by January 10th, he had begun to cough. The next day, he put an N95 mask on. Not wanting to infect the family, he sent them to his in-laws 200 miles away and checked into a hotel. He was soon back in the hospital, this time in an isolation ward. On February 1st, 2020, a nucleic acid test showed positive for the new coronavirus. Well, that's it then, confirmed, he wrote on Weibo from his bed. He was an optimistic sort, though the household finances were pretty stretched. He felt sure he would win the big prize in the online lucky grab bag run by Lo Youngha, the founder of the Smartisan tech company, whose products he much coveted, and got that same lucky feeling when he tried to win a pair of AirPods Pro, though he ended up with neither. When it came to this new virus, though, it might take him half a month to regain full lung function. He would soon be back on the front line fighting. After all, he was the man who in 2012, when the world had been supposed to end, had announced on Weibo that he was going to save it. Though if the sun rises as usual, he said, don't thank me, I'm just doing my duty. His fame had spread far and wide too. Reporters, even from the New York Times, wanted interviews. These had to be done by text and via WeChat, since from late January, he could not breathe on his own and was hooked up to continuous flow oxygen. It didn't help as much as he expected. His blood oxygen saturation levels got no better. But online, he could go on making defiant and upbeat remarks. There had to be more transparency. The truth was important. A healthy society should never have just one voice. And to the young woman reporter who wanted a selfie of him, as if he was Zhao Zan, ever perfectly groomed, cute, and slim, he sent an apology, along with the photo of his masked, tubed, and haunted face. Sorry, he hadn't washed his hair for a while. All right, I would like to turn to my conversation for today and introduce my guest to you. Really been looking forward to this discussion. Let me introduce Fiona Anciano, who's an associate professor in the Department of Political Studies at the University of the Western Cape, South Africa. She's a qualitative researcher with an interest in urban governance, democratization, and civil society. She conducts research in informal settlements on urban democracy and informality. In 2020, she ran the Lockdown Diaries Project reflecting on the impact of COVID-19 regulations on residents in Cape Town. She's produced numerous publications, including book chapters and journal articles, most recently a co-authored book titled Democracy Disconnected, Participation and Governance in a City of the South, published by Rutledge UK in 2019. She's also the co-editor of a forthcoming collection published by Rutledge titled Political Values and Narratives of Resistance, Social Justice, and the fractured promises of post-colonial states. Fiona Anciano, thank you so much for joining me on COVID calls today. Hi, Scott, thanks very much for having me. So let's start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic is looking like there today. Yeah, so I am in Cape Town in South Africa, um, which is luckily a very beautiful place. If I could flip my screen, you'd see a beautiful mountain behind me. Um, but we have not had an easy time with the pandemic. 
Today is a good day, however, because we are firmly, I think, on a very steep bottom of our second wave curve. So we are back in a good place. Um, and by that, we've only had about one, one and a half thousand new cases today or yesterday. Our data comes out at night and about 130 deaths yesterday, which is a lot, um, but a lot less than we've been having over the December holidays. So we, we've had two waves here. Uh, the first wave um, sort of hit around June, July last year. And then we had a, a, a good time of it, um, I guess, in uh, around October, November, December, well, November, and then our, our, our curve went up exponentially. And we've had a very steep um, increase in, in cases. And that's because December for South Africa is when the country travels. And um, so we normally have our, our workers' holidays or builders' holidays, for example, will start on the 16th of December, which is a public holiday here and would normally last for three weeks and everybody goes back to where they come from. And it's quite a migrant um, country. So, um, and people also, we have a lot of uh, nationals from Zimbabwe, for example, neighboring countries who live probably, I mean, millions of Zimbabweans who live in South Africa and they also travel backwards and forwards. So I think that travel uh, has put us into a very steep second wave. Um, but. We're in a good place today in that I think, you know, our lockdown uh, regulations have slowly been reduced and probably will be even more reduced in the next week or two, I would think. If I were to walk down the street with you today, socially distanced, of course, what would I see? Would people be wearing masks and, and keeping distance and finding their way to vaccination clinic and staying away from bars and restaurants? So give me a sense of just how the sort of lived experience on the street level really looks? So that's a very good question. And I think it would depend entirely which street we walk down. <laughs> because, um, So if we start with um, a middle class area, a, a suburb, uh, you'd see masks. Not if you're exercising. Uh, where I live, lots of people, do, a lot of, I and mean, that's one of the upsides of the, the, the lockdown is it seems to have generated a wave of runners across the country. Um, so if you go out in the morning and you walk around, you'll see lots of cyclists and runners and no one will be wearing masks when they exercise. But um, aside from exercise, everybody has a mask on all the time in, in I would say, suburbia or in shopping malls, um, in any public space, everybody will have a mask on. And that's because it's a legal requirement. And I think also recognition that masks save lives. Um, that wouldn't have been the case at the start of lockdown uh, or the start of the COVID or the pandemic here, but definitely is now. So everybody's masked up. However, that if you go into an informal settlement, which is a, a, other parts of the world would call them slums, um, people won't be wearing masks there uh, within, within their settlement area. So those are, are places with shacks, informal dwellings, um, because a lot of those areas have shared sanitation, are very very condensed. They're, they're not high story. They're not high rises. It's it's not it's it's um, single story shacks, but it's a very condensed living environment. And wearing a mask to go to a shared um, sanitation facility is kind of seen. It, it, you and I wouldn't do it either if we were there. It's ridiculous. Why would you wear that and then you're going to go and share a toilet that someone else has used anyway? Like it doesn't make sense to wear a mask within that environment. Um, so probably there you wouldn't see the masks. But as soon as you enter any kind of major street or leave your your the informal settlements then you will i i want to follow up and and find out more about the the settlements and the sort of disparities and we're going to talk i think in, in depth about that but there's one other sort of setting i wanted to get a, a handle on and that's the campus so what's been the campus experience in terms of teaching and in terms of how you know what kind of restrictions have been on students through this time mm. Well, um, what campus? Unfortunately, we haven't been on campus for since March last year. And um, yeah, I mean, it's very sad. So our lockdown started in uh, early March. No, 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 late March, 27th of March, 2020. Uh, our first cases were in early March. And um, the university had a, a break uh, over the sort of well, our, our first term. Our, our years here run from January to December, our academic year. And so at the end of our first term of teaching, we have four terms a year. There was a natural break and everybody campus, you know, had a holiday for a week and then we shut down and nobody went back to campus. And since then, campus has not opened up. So it's been a very long time of no students. Um, and we are now, because of what happened was in the, um, in your, in, in the American fall, in, in our sort of uh, 
October, November, we started planning for blended learning to start this year, uh, the 2021 year, because we were at the bottom of our first wave and we were optimistic that we'll be okay. We can go back to some kind of blended um, process. Uh, we obviously would never be 100% face-to-face. We have huge, huge class numbers here. Just to put into context, um, I teach a first-year class of political studies. I have 500 students um, minimum. My colleagues who would teach information systems, for example, or um, economics are looking at 800 students in a first year class. So they're normally divided into groups, but you know we have large lecture venues of 300 to 400 students. And so that, that was definitely, we realized we could not be doing that again. So we started planning for blended learning. And then we, our wave went up in December and we had to say, make a call, obviously, because we had to plan for the year. And, and as the kind of leadership team, and I'm, I'm a, a deputy dean at the moment, so I'm part of making all these decisions of teaching and learning. And we had to decide, nope, it's got to go back to online. And, and personally, I'm very sad about that. I really like students. I like seeing them. That's why I'm, I like to teach. So we will be online only until uh, July, August. And that's, that's the way we're trying to do it. It's such a tough decision, and I know so many academic administrators in, in the United States who agonized over these kinds of these decisions, and I think also have just the way you described it, um, you don't decide once and all for the year. You try to be sort of, you know, receptive to new information, um, but the idea of having 800 students or 1,000 students somehow following public health protocols in, in a classroom and sorting that out, I mean, the logistics of that are are sort of mind mind blowing, really. So, um, well, what you what you described very honestly about missing your students, it really resonates, I think, with all of us mm-hmm. at at this time. Let me um, go back, if you don't mind, and let's talk a little bit about the early part of the pandemic from your perspective. Always interested to find out how people um, first sort of got the consciousness of the pandemic. When did it first? When did you first become aware of it? And then maybe we can talk about you know. South African society more generally in the sort of very early phase, the kind of communications that were coming in in March of 2020. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, the, we first really became aware of it here um, in very early March when some South Africans had been in Italy on a skiing holiday, had come back and got sick. And there were about 10 of them had gone and half of them got sick. So the very first kind of patient zero that we knew of was one of these, uh, a man who'd been on a skiing holiday. Um, that I'm pretty sure was not the first case of COVID in our country because Cape Town is a is a very um, good uh, tourist destination and we have a lot of European travelers here every year, uh, starting in December, January, February. So most likely in January, or maybe more like February, March, there would have been European travelers as well who'd come in with the, the virus, but that was the first case. Um, and then they, it was very abstract because nobody was really sick and it was very, very limited. And it was, um, you know, the person, the people who got it first and the tourists indeed were staying in, you know, wealthy middle-class areas with, uh, you know, so there wasn't a lot of exposure. You, you weren't going into an informal settlements where there would have been mass transmission. Um, and it took many months before actually people started to get very sick in numbers and started dying. So there were deaths, but there were small numbers. And so I think, you know, there was a, a bit of a, a lull in our understanding of what it, the impact was going to be here. But, um, you know, the way the government responded was actually quite, uh, they responded as though there was a significant pandemic. And at the time, I thought it was actually an excellent response, to be honest. Um, many people were like, this is crazy going into lockdown where no one's even sick and we don't have transmission yet. But I think there was a sense of what had happened in other parts of the world and what a pandemic could be. And so our first case early March, around the 24th of March, I think it was, around then, the president had a um, a, a televised uh, meeting. with. So we call them here family meetings. (laughs) It's quite funny. So the president speaks often uh, every few weeks every month or two and then it's called oh it's a family meeting tonight and then you know at eight o'clock we all turn our tvs on and sit in the family meeting of course that's a very odd kind of family meeting because it's one way yeah right <laughs> nobody, nobody can talk about nope and, and and they're never any journalists who ask any questions so it's not not my kind of family meeting but anyway <laughs> not the way my kids work but um anyway so the family meeting happened and we had three days as a country to go into complete and total lockdown 
uh, and that meant not allowed to leave your house at all, not for exercise. The only reason you were allowed to leave was to go to the shops, and then it could be as an individual. And um, I mean, it was quite extreme, I have to say. Uh, so to go from, so yeah, to from no problem, not significant cases to not being able to leave your home. And um, we had yeah three days to do it. I was actually uh, on holiday. It was just around the Easter, just before Easter with my kids and my husband. And um, we had to pack up and leave and drive home. And so did a lot of people. Everyone had to move and get back to your place of residence. And yeah, that's when our, our, our hard lockdown started. That's what we called the hard lockdown. And it worked because if you look at our graph of our cases, you know, most countries have a naught to 100K, you know, the, the first 100 days being a pretty steep graph. Ours is steep for a very minor portion of it. And then it tails right off. Sorry, I'm in the wrong It tails right off. And so it did really stop us from having an ex, uh, a harsh first 100 days. It really did uh, make, and it gave time to the hospitals. That was the whole point. That was the selling point. The government said we need our hospitals to get ready. So we need to have hard lockdown so they can prepare. And it did give them that space. How well the hospitals used that space, and well, that's another story. Um, but that was the idea. But that's what I wanted to ask you about. Maybe give us a, a sort of sense of how the South African health system works. I mean, first of all, I'm very impressed, although the harshness of it is is equally impressive. Three days to prepare. I can't even imagine something like that in the United States. Um, but like you said, I mean, that was to give to buy the health system time to prepare for an inevitability, which would be an increasing number of cases down the line. Sketch out for us how the health Uh, Scott, I lost you there for a moment, but I think you were asking me to sketch out the health system and how it works here. Right. So we have, um, I'm just going to do very broad strokes. <laughs> so basically we have a private healthcare system and we have a government healthcare system. And the, the vast majority of people in the country use the government healthcare system. So I think it's just important to, to sort of flag up for your listeners that South Africa has one of the highest Gini coefficients in the world, which means we are one of the most unequal countries in the world, if not the most unequal. We always vie for number one, two or three, you know, not a race you want to win. But anyway, so what that means is that there is a minority of people who have excellent private health care and top class facilities and hospitals and carers and, and medical staff. And then there is the rest of the population who work, who have, it's like a national health system, you know, who have free health care. Um, and, you know, it's not, I don't want to paint a dire picture here. It's not a terrible health system. I mean, it certainly is better than many other uh, lower income countries of the world. Uh, you know, um, we have very good training. We have, you know, good universities that train very good medical doctors. So we have good expertise. It's just the sheer volume of patients versus the size of the health system, um, you know, is the problem. However, most people will be able to get an appointment and get seen, and most will be able to get admitted. So, so you will get healthcare if you need it. Um, the health the health policies as such are, are generally set by a national government, and our pandemic, we've we've had a minister of health who is actually a doctor. And has had, and he's been the, the face of managing the pandemic. He initially was certainly during the first, uh, the first sort of six months or so. And so there was a strong medical sense of why policies and rules were in place because this is a very strong kind of sense of, of medical, you know, um, flow going into the policy making system. And I think that did help people to feel secure that we were making rational choices. I guess. Um, so yeah, so that came down from top and as a national kind of policy healthcare. But we have um, what we call in this country provinces, which would be the same as states in, in America. So we have um, nine provinces. And those provinces have a lot of jurisdiction over their own healthcare system in terms of the, the operationalization of it. Not necessarily the policies as a such, but how they operationalize. And so what we have seen in this country is huge discrepancies in how the healthcare has been um, managed so in our poor, one of our poorest provinces, a place called the Eastern Cape, where actually Mandela was from, and a lot of our leaders come from that area. But it's a very poor area. It's a rural, predominantly rural area, um, and it hasn't done well under mass urbanization because the youth have all moved to the cities. And so um, what's happened there is people have become ill, the transmission. Oh, well, yeah, the, the Eastern Cape is where, uh, you know, the South African strain, I don't, I don't want to like, 
using that term because it's not really fair. I'm sure there are other countries that have strains too. I'm not a doctor or medical, but I, anyway, it's got a technical name. I, I don't know, but the South African strain came from patient zero there in the Eastern Cape. Um, so there we've seen very poor healthcare services, major human rights um, issues, and a lot of uh, yeah poor service, extreme poverty. And while the estimated deaths are highest in the country, they're not that high if you look at them. Um, but that's but then if you take into account what excess deaths, uh, actually they're extremely high. They're they're as high as the the, the major epicenters in um, Italy or, or New York, for example, if not higher. In fact, probably one of the highest in the world. Um, yeah. So obviously documentation and what is documented is always different to what happens in reality too. However, the discrepancy then happens. I mean, in Cape Town, where I live, in this province, it's got a, a very good medical um, system and very uh, very well maintained and administered hospitals. So while we've also had quite high death rates, the care has been at a much higher level um, and access. And then, of course, if you're in the private system and you've got medical aid, which most professionals would have, um, you're okay. You're, you're, you're then going to see your GP and you're going to pay, but you're going to get good service. That uh, sort of diversity in, in the provinces in terms of the, um, the response or, or the infection rate, I mean, that's something people in the United States have had to grapple with. Shouldn't have had to because it should have been a federal response, but pretty early didn't go that direction. I wonder if you could characterize that sort of on the political situation in South Africa. Has there been um, pushback at the provincial level to um, sort of central control. It sounds like there has been some some tension there in variable outcomes. And I know it must be very complicated and with more time than we maybe have to go into it. But I am interested to hear how you characterize those tensions between the national and the sub-national levels. Yeah. So um, South Africa has a ruling party, the ANC, um, African National Congress, that was Mandela's original party, and you know, that's the history liberation struggle party, and they're still in power, and they have been in power since 1994. Um, and they so 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 they they run the national government and they also run have power, we have local government elections as well, where you can vote for your your state's governor, etc. Um, although our, we don't have an electoral college in the way you guys do, it's very different. We have proportional representation, one vote, one person. Um, so it's, it's slightly more transparent the way it works here. In any event, the ANC run eight of the nine provinces. The major opposition party in the country, and when I say major, they've got about 20% of the opposition vote. So it's not like they're challenging the ANC for rule at any point soon. And there certainly is no opposition that is likely to, to overthrow the ANC in, in, in the near future. Um, our opposition is very disparate and, and broken and a very bad place right now, actually. It's probably at its lowest ebb in I don't know, 20 years. Anyway, um, the Western Cape province where I live in Cape Town, that is run by a party called the Democratic Alliance. And that's an anomaly here because they're the only non-ANC uh, province. And so that's really the only place there's been tension is you've now got it. But the, the party that runs the Western Cape, this particular province is, um, yeah, it's very efficient party and it's known for good service delivery, you know? So, um, it has done that, and it is it is relatively reliable. It's got a lot of other issues going on with it. <laughs> it's it's a very near. It's a liberal party, a strongly liberal party, and not very good on the equity. And um, yeah, it's got some other concerns, but it has helped to maintain um, our medical system pretty well here. And there are tensions often with this party. So I'll give you one example. Um, in December, the president announced all the beaches are closed across the country. I mean, there were different levels of lockdown at different parts. Some were closed and some weren't closed. And then eventually it was like, no, beaches are closed. Um, and this is our holiday. You know, this is this is December. This is this is our beach holiday. This is the time where, you know, a lot of people get to go to the sea and that's, you know, where whatever wants you to relax. It didn't go down well. <laughs> but it was sensible because also you have massive congregations in certain beaches. But what happened was where the the DA, the Democratic Alliance rule, um, along one of those parts of the country, there was a massive impact on tourism and economic stability of that part. And the DA took the government to court to say, you cannot close beaches here because you're decimating the economy. So there's been a lot of tension. The DA has taken the ANC to court and the government to court quite a lot over different policies. Another one they've challenged is um, smoking. So this might be interesting for your listeners because I don't think this happened anywhere else in the world, but our lockdown 
uh, prohibited the selling of cigarettes and the selling of alcohol. So we've had alcohol banned pretty much half the year, actually, last year, which is very interesting for a country that is um, got extreme levels of alcohol abuse, actually. Uh, we were up there with Russia in terms of addiction to alcohol and alcohol abuse. And so to ban alcohol uh, had also a significant impact. The reason for the alcohol ban was because it freed up trauma centers in the hospitals. And it is very evident that it did. That You can track from the day alcohol is banned, uh, sales of alcohol. Obviously, you can drink your old stock if you've got some left over, but you can't go and buy any and you certainly can't have any in a restaurant. Um, then trauma cases did go down. But the rationale, so people could sort of vaguely accept that, but the rationale for banning cigarettes, the sale of cigarettes, was never clear and never has been. And so the opposition party took the government to court around that as well. So yeah, there is tension there, but it's not enough tension to ever threaten the, the kind of power of the ruling party. Just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls, and today we're talking about COVID-19 in South Africa, and we're going to talk about a tremendous project called the Lockdown Diaries Project with my guest, Fiona Anciano. You can get your questions in on the YouTube live chat. Um, you can also put them up on Twitter if you want to. Just be sure to tag at US of Disaster. So I did want to ask you about this. Like so many social scientists I've talked to, um, you're living through this, and at the same time, you came up with an idea for a creative um, real-time response project to, to get a sense of how people were processing this pandemic. And it, um, I talked with some guests earlier, back in 2020, Sarah Willen at the University of Connecticut and Kate Mason at Brown, who'd done a project called the COVID-19 Journaling Project. And um, so listeners may have heard of one take on this, but I'm really fascinated to hear about yours, Fiona. What gave you the idea and how did you begin to deploy this project? Yeah. Well, I had been working with some colleagues looking at how people in informal settlements, I'll, I, I'm not sure what language to use for your listeners. I mean, we don't use the word slums, but if that's easier to understand, you can say slums, um, deal with shocks, environmental and uh, shocks to their, to their, their environment in particular fire, for example, or flooding. So how would someone living in, an, in a precarious situation in a slum deal with the crisis in real time? And we've been trying to understand the impact of a massive fire uh, in, in one of the informal settlements I was researching. And as I was driving home after the lockdown was announced and I was, we were looking at, as we were driving along the roads through the country, you could just see hundreds and hundreds of people queuing outside banks, outside shops. And it struck me that this is a moment in history that we need to understand. This is unprecedented. We've never been told ever in our lives, not even under the harsh environment of the 1980s where we had states of emergency during apartheid. No one's ever been told you have to live in your home and not, not leave it. Um, this is a shock. How will people respond? And it struck me, well, I'm a researcher. I should be researching this and you're never going to get a better time and we can research it in real time. Of course, so the idea was very nice, but then how do you turn that into, into reality uh, to make it you know, a, a robust and, and um, ethically uh, research project? So I contacted my colleague I've been working with. She was at the University of Edinburgh, um, SJ Cooper-Nock, and I contacted some of my researchers who are studying with us postgrads, a PhD and some master's students who had been researching in the field with me. And we had a team meeting and said, guys, what should we do about this? And we brainstormed a whole lot of ideas. And we decided to do WhatsApp diaries, basically, and to use our networks. So we were very quickly able to get funding from the University of Edinburgh, which was great, to allow us to pay all our respondents for their time. We were very keen on that as well, because at the time, there was a strong sense of anyone who's ever worked in an informal settlement understanding that people were going to be hitting poverty and hunger. And if you couldn't leave your house, you can't work. And most people live on the breadline day to day. So what was the impact of that? So we didn't want to add something else to their time without giving them some payments. So we got funding for um, cash stipends that we could pay through a phone. And um, we reached out to our networks. And very quickly, we 
well, I must add for any academic listening, we got ethical clearance from two universities in one week. So that was a record. <laughs> um, but aside from that, which was wonderful because it meant we could then actually do the project very quickly. So we, we got off the ground within, I think within 10 days of the idea we were researching. We had, we had diarists. And um, yeah, we then, we then had 70 people across Cape Town. So we decided to reach out to um, a kind of demographic selection. We wanted wealthy. We wanted across the color um, spectrum. So in South Africa, we have black, white, and a, a Indian, and we have a, a community called colored, which I know is an unusual name to use in other parts of the world, but they're called the colored community here. And so we wanted to talk to people across that spectrum. We wanted to talk to different um, genders. And we also wanted to understand people who live in different kinds of uh, physical infrastructure, buildings, shacks, uh, suburban homes. And through uh, the team, using all of our networks and resources, we managed to get 70 people who represented that. And it was a wonderful uh, time where everyone came together. And yeah, so we then, had diaries where we asked prompt questions three times a week every second day basically we'd send out a diary prompt on whatsapp and we'd ask people to just respond in a few sentences and um the prompts were very so we spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking through how you ask these prompts very carefully so it was sort of like you know when you design a survey you've got to think very carefully about each question it was like that so there was a lot of backwards and forwardsing and testing out but we ended up with um our prompts that got sent out and they were genuinely would be asking about current issues. Uh, I mean, there were so many of them, I actually can't think of any offhand now, but you know, how do you feel? Everything from impact on your family, on gender, on um, schooling, on uh, policing, on we, we covered everything that may have been relevant. On exercise, for example, because interestingly, while we were banned in the first stage of lockdown at what was called level five, we have five levels in South Africa. Level five, you couldn't leave your house at all. Level four, you were allowed to go out and exercise between the hours of 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. in the morning within a five-kilometer radius. So it was really interesting because suddenly we saw across the country people who had never bothered to go for a walk, all going out and running every morning between 6 and 9. It was really Everybody's funny. Out. So Those three out. hours in the country. Of course, that was during winter, so you couldn't really go between 6 and 7 because it was dark. So there was right. it actually ended up being 90 minutes where everybody in the country was out in the same space. So I have never seen more congestion or more people together in one space ever. I mean, I, I would leave my door and be like, who are all these people? I, I imagine everybody in every house in the street you live in coming out for those 90 minutes because that was the only time you could leave your house. So those were very interesting social things that we actually asked about. So we asked the heavy questions. We asked about trust. We asked about policing. We asked about, I mean, we never asked about income and, and, and work because we didn't want to trigger any trauma. So it was quite careful as well. We had to be very careful about not asking questions where it was going to trigger a kind of emotional response that we couldn't support because we couldn't offer counseling remotely. Um, we could offer remote counseling through another service, but we, we couldn't hold our respondents in a way that you would do face to face. Right. So we had to think carefully about how you ask questions. Yeah. And so that was the project and it carried on for about four months. Um, and yeah, an amazing repository of, of um, 70 people. I wonder if you could maybe characterize some of the uh, exemplary responses. I'm really, you know, curious, I mean, particularly um, how you felt in receiving some of these responses, some of the details that came in that maybe surprised you, that gave real grain and nuance to this to this experience. I mean, one of the things I would observe, um, you know, um, 70 really depends on your frame of reference if you think that's a lot or a little, but, but um, I would think that's quite a lot. And particularly that the, the care you took in cultivating a very diverse sample of people, you you probably really got a pretty fascinating cross section of experiences. So I wonder if you could say a little bit more about some of those responses. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I have to say this was very much a team team project, and there were five of us. And if if everybody wasn't holding their respondents, we would never have been able to manage because, you know. Sure, if you're doing a quantitative study, 70 is nothing, but for a qualitative study, 70 is a lot, actually, <laughs> um, particularly in real time. So, do you want to take a second and name check the team at, at some point, or, or we want to make sure yes, we acknowledge the rest of the team? Yeah. I would like to do that. Um, I mean, I'd like to also have shared their images as well. Um, so, yeah, so 
what we what we found, I mean, there was there was there's so much that was interesting. I mean, it's hard to sort of to pick and choose between particular ones. One of the interesting things I think was that some of the discrepancies you might have thought would have been stronger across. Um, so let, let's talk about gender, for example. What was the gender burden of the pandemic? Like, did it actually affect women or men? And I'm not talking about the illness, but the impact of now being locked down at home with your family, homeschooling. If you were lucky, you had some kind of homeschooling, but mostly no schooling. What were you doing for months? Who carried the burden of that? What did it mean? And what, what we found, interestingly enough, is that actually it wasn't, we, I, I would have thought initially understanding my, my, my knowledge of um, gender bias here, that the, the poorer communities would have suffered more, women in poorer communities would have carried more of the burden. But actually we found that was kind of across the board, that women generally were, suffer, were finding, so we, we have some of our respondents in the wealthier areas quit their jobs because someone had to look after the children all day. And what was interesting as well um, is that in the wealthier areas, most people would have domestic workers who come in every day. And domestic workers obviously couldn't come in anymore because they weren't allowed to travel or work or leave home. And so suddenly you had families who've had help their whole lives every day for eight hours a day with no help. And now it's cooking and kids and cleaning and managing a full-time job. So that was quite interesting. You know, the, the gender burden... Yeah, that was something we definitely saw coming across all our respondents generally. Although some women use it as an opportunity to step up and take community leadership. So we had quite a few in, in the informal settlements who said, actually, this is our moment now to step up and to say, we, we need to, to, to organize what's happening in our community and I'm going to take on that role. So I think, I guess what I'm saying, one of the interesting things about the impact was that the gender roles were, were thrown up in the air because suddenly you also now had men who had never had to worry about, in informal settlements too, about feeding their kids, uh, weren't generally home for that anyway. Now they're home all day, every day with their children. And some said, I've never bonded more with my family. It's been the best thing that ever happened to me. Some of the men said that too. So there was a very interesting gender, that unintended consequence of lockdown, that, you know, really opened up that, that conversation. Um, one of the other interesting things, I mean, I, was we asked our respondents later on in our study, if you could ask the president to bring in one regulation, what would it be? You know, and um, it was, there, there was no multiple choice. They could write whatever they wanted. And, and of our 70, the highest number that answered the same thing, that asked for the same thing, which was only 12, so it's not high, and it's not statistically relevant, but it was very interesting to me that of those answers, 12 people all said, please bring back the alcohol ban. And I was stunned by that. I was like, of all the things you want, you want to ban alcohol? But actually, what had happened is it really shone a spotlight on alcohol abuse problems. Um, and, and again, not just in informal settlements, but across the country as a whole. And that actually, this, so a lot of our respondents said our family had never been closer. Our husbands are present. They're not drinking anymore in the Shabin. So Shabin is an informal tavern. Um, our finances are better because the money's not being spent on alcohol. So that was very interesting and that was something we hadn't expected. And then a last example um, that was also quite interesting is we, we sent out some of our findings just for some peer review, um, just not for publishing. We actually haven't published yet. Oh, bad academic. Anyway, um, but just to get some kind of feedback from, what, you know, from colleagues who work in the area. And one person said, none of your respondents ever actually talk about being sick or going to hospital or having the virus. And then we suddenly sat back and we were like, you're right. We've been doing this for three months. So this would have been April, May, June. And actually COVID itself as an illness is just not what's on their radar. They're dealing with all the consequences of lockdown, you know, income, transport, family, all of these education, all of these consequences of not being able to, to work and live a normal life. But very few of them have actually been sick, if any, really. I mean, maybe, maybe a handful in the end were. And very, I think they'll be very different now. I think that would have been different had we been doing the diaries in December. But at that point, we kind of went, isn't this interesting? You know, there's a huge massive lockdown and all these consequences and a fundamental change. But actually the illness itself is not coming up in the diaries at all. So that was quite interesting. I mean, that is such a, I mean, thank you for sharing all those observations. And particularly that last one uh, really hits hard, I think, for disaster researchers who know that quite often if you're studying a disaster, the, the agent that everybody seems to be focused on, if it's the flood or the fire, it's not that it's not real, it's not happening, it's not affecting people, but it's quite often not what's, what's bringing misery or what's bringing solidarity. 
that it's these many other phenomena uh, which seem to be around the edges, but what you've de described may be the central experience that people will remember, a closeness of family time. I've heard other people talk about that experience or a distance in family time or, or whatever it, it may be. I wanted to follow up on one aspect because one of the things I like about the site that you have, and everybody should go and check out the lockdowndiaries.org site. We'll be sure to put that up on Twitter as well, is there are also some synthetic essays that the team seems to have generated along the way. So you create a kind of a mezzo space for some thinking about what's coming in, which I'm sure provoked, you know, further research and further questions as you went. And I was curious to see um, how the questions around racial justice and inequality um, had worked through your project. And I just want to quote one line from one of the essays that's there. Um, and one of the team writes, over the last seven weeks, the COVID-19 crisis has collided with the everyday crisis that numerous citizens were already facing. Prior to the crisis, many South Africans were struggling with rampant unemployment, exploitative work, and limited state services, which all continue to be shaped by the racist legacies of apartheid. So I wonder if you comment about that stream of the research a little bit, how you found um, sort of the legacy of apartheid through this and you know how the sort of COVID lockdown interacted with the racial tensions that are existing in South Africa today. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's probably the most profound um, impact of the lockdown. And certainly from what we saw, ultimately, if you look at our diaries and you stand back and you do the analysis, it, the lockdown, and I'm not going to talk specifically about COVID itself as the illness, but the impact of the lockdown has profoundly exacerbated inequality in this country. And that inequality, and I, and I mean that on every level, education, income, um, gender, that inequality is all based on the foundation of the apartheid structure to start off with. So, you know, had we not started with such a profoundly unequal society, you may have seen lockdown having a different impact. But all it's done, and to me, this is the greatest tragedy. You know, I, I'm a very silver lining person. I like to think, oh, what's the upside? Oh, what can the positive thing be? You know, but the truth is, I think if you take a lens five years into the future, the impact of this lockdown and COVID is going to have been to fundamentally deepen those troughs of inequality and those silos in which people live in. And I mean, there are some happy stories, which I can share with you as well, but um, the major impact, I think, is definitely on the education system, which I can talk to you in a, in a minute. But I think the, the problem was the apartheid structure, and, I, and I'm not, you know, the apartheid structure entrenched this kind of racial division that, I mean, I think it's, everybody knows about. And what's interesting is that it wasn't, it's not necessarily race that's been the top of the, the conversation during the lockdowns. People actually, in fact, race has relatively become quite quiet, but that's partly because race is never quiet in South Africa and we talk about it constantly and all the time and in most public forums. So, you know, when the Black Lives Matter um, happened, it, it, it was important, obviously, but it's like, yeah, yeah, well, we've been doing this for years. So oh, welcome to the party, people. <laughs> you know, we've been, so it, I don't, it wasn't the same emotive processing that we saw in the US or in, in the UK, for example, yeah. Um, so what's interesting is that understanding the lockdown isn't necessarily a reflection on race per se, but on deepened inequalities in the system, which largely correlate to race. But South Africa has, I think, only about 8% or less of the population are white. So it's not just to race anymore. Well, that's important, and that's the bedrock. It's not, not just race. So basically, if you were a professional middle class um, or upper and you had a paid job, you could survive the lockdown. And in fact, even thrive. Many people have thrived. If you've got internet connection and you are very adaptable and you can use your networks and you've got the resources around you, whether it's domestic support to look after your children or online schooling that someone else is managing, if you could afford to keep your support base going well, and you had a paid job, or you were entrepreneurial, you may have thrived during lockdown to take advantage. But if you didn't have any of those, and your opportunities decreased even more. So what the, the stats said, I mean, if it, the surveys showed that actually income surveys that the, the poorest 25% got even poorer, and the wealthiest 10% got potentially wealthier or even weren't affected. I can't remember the exact numbers now because they were from about sort of five months ago. But um, that's the problem with the lockdown, is that if you don't have coping mechanisms around you, and our diaries show that, you become desperate and there's nowhere to go. So that's my concern moving forward. And I mean, I can talk a bit about education if you're interested as to how what happened there. 
Uh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. I'd like to hear about how you see that impacting the education system. And then also, I know the um, sort of the social welfare payments, you know, the United States, we've had never ending debates about how much is the right amount. And as Congress debated, the people who needed the money, uh, many became homeless, not able to pay other sorts of medical bills. I mean, that's been a disaster within the disaster. We'd love to hear about, you know, how you view those issues there. Yeah. Okay. So, so uh, let me talk about some happy stories and then I'll talk about that. <laughs> so, so one of the good things is that the government did quite, I mean, it, it wasn't rolled out particularly well, but it was rolled out that there was a 350 Rand grant. I'm trying to just do my sums into dollars, um, say $20 roughly. I mean, that sounds horrific, <laughs> $20 a month. That was our, okay, now I'm saying that out loud in dollars. That doesn't sound very good. It's not a good story, is it? Anyway, people could apply for this grant and that was a monthly stipend and that was basically enough to buy some food. Um, but it did work and millions and millions of people did apply and uh, millions did actually get it. It's And they've continued it now for another few months. I'm not sure exactly when it will end. So, um, so there was some kind of help. We also have a social grant system here you know, so that we do. We are a welfare state to some extent, as much as we can afford to be, and we do have uh, pensions grants for pensioners. We have grants, school ch children grants. We have grants for disabled. So there is a, a um, quite an established grant system, and this was now another grant called the Social Relief of Distress Grant. Um, yeah, so that I suppose is a good thing. It just had some teething issues with rolling it out. It was a lot of it was rolled out through WhatsApp, interestingly, um, and then another relatively positive outcome, it was that a lot of communities in wealthier areas started getting together with communities in, in poorer areas and forming community action networks. They were called CANs. And so in the area I lived and in most areas, almost entirely across Cape Town, if you were a wealthy area, you gathered together weekly resources, food, stationery, clothes, whatever you could. And it was it was given every week to a poor area. So you were matched up with an area. So there was, a, and that's still continuing. And that's a wonderful bridging. It's obviously got some ideological issues and you've got to work through power relations and all of that, but it's a start to trying to understand communities. Um, and there's been huge food drives to avoid hunger and that kind of thing. So it's, it's in a way, in an odd sort of way, you know, homelessness is not a huge problem here in the way it is in the States because you can live very cheaply. There's more opportunity to find somewhere to go and live um, where someone will take you in. You don't need to find a formal home or rent an apartment because of our slums. You can be accommodated somewhere. And interestingly, we actually had two occupied buildings as part of our respondents. So we had people from two different occupied buildings in the city, an old hospital that was occupied, and we had respondents living in that. So they're the homes. So we, we actually had homeless in our mm -hmm. study as well. And they were okay. They had food gardens. They, they got through it. So, um, yeah, th those are my happy stories. My concern is the longer term. And the, so obviously employment um, jobs crisis, real problem. We have huge numbers. I mean, our unemployment levels are in the high 30s. So that's a, and that, that's you know, a positive estimate of unemployment. But that's not my concern. My concern is that schools were shut down for large, I don't know exactly how many months. I should, because my kids were home all the time. <laughs> but I don't work out the dates. But government <laughs> schools were basically just closed a lot of last year. And um, while some had, so my children go to a good government school and they have teachers that offered online teaching and they were able to log in and have lessons and classes and keep some level of education. And all children eventually passed the year last year. So the school, the school year was completed. It wasn't written off. Um, however, the majority of government schools in the country would not have been able to offer online lessons. People don't have data. They don't have laptops. They don't have any web. And the teachers have no experience. So you now have a system where the majority of children, particularly in the poor areas, have lost out on half a year of education. They're now being passed to move everyone along the system, but there's a huge education gap that's got to now be clawed back and a deep fear of COVID now, which is actually causing illness. And I mean, the evidence shows that it's not happening in the schools, but there's still a fear there. So there's still a reticence. And the consequence of that and it's likely that our schools will continue to shut down as we have a third wave this year and probably a fourth wave because we haven't discussed vaccines, but basically we don't have any down here. Problem. AstraZeneca didn't work so well with the South African strain. Um, so we're not going to get vaccinated till mid end of the year at best, at best. And we're probably not going to achieve herd immunity unless it happens organically within communities, which is some evidence that is happening in informal settlements for a long time. So we're going to continue closing schools. And that the, if that's not happening across the board, 
because we also have a private school system and the private schools are running. And so if you can afford to, you will take your child and put them in a private school because they're going to be getting either really good quality online education if they're, if they're forced to close, but mostly the private schools are opening and it's face-to-face -face teaching. And so this inequality, and that's what I mean, the inequality is just deepening and deepening and deepening. And who can afford the private schools? Though mostly whites who benefited from apartheid, if you've still got that um, you know, financial legacy in your family, if you're still doing well, or those who are already elite or already professional upper class. And so how are we ever going to try and bridge this inequality gap if our education system is now just perpetuating that problem? So this is that deepening of that trough of inequality that you're that you're projecting, you know, in the United States, I, I, I think it would be too too much to say we had a political revolution in in November. What we, we did certainly have a um, an attempt, and we'll see how far we go with that this year in other countries as well, um, to actually, when these inequalities have surfaced, to use the reaction to the pandemic as a way to address some of these more structural issues. Time will tell how serious that legislation will be and how much impact it will have. You. Earlier, you you said you thought the ANC is well in power and will remain so, but it, it does seem like, could it be a, a moment for some sort of more uh, structural political reaction to the kind of inequalities that, that you're describing? You know, it should be. <laughs> um, there was a moment last year where there was a, a, a shift change where you could feel, and I think there's still a legacy of that. So when PPE was being brought in, um, there was extensive corruption around that. So basically, everybody was asked to contribute as individuals to a solidarity fund, which would then go out and be able to buy things like PPE and all the rest and support our health workers and the economy, etc. And then a few months down the line, because we have very um, good media here, who are very good investigative journalists, it was exposed the extent of the corruption in the PPP linked to government officials and, and um, politicians. And that was a moment for this country to go, are you serious? In the middle of a pandemic, now you're actually going to steal? I mean, really? So it was, and we have a huge problem with um, entrenched corruption in the country. And so that, and so for us as a country to react and go, no, this is actually shocking beyond what we even knew was going on. So that has been a moment. And I think the problem, so, so, and there was actually a state capture inquiry happening right now, today, as we speak. So there's very interesting things happening yesterday and today with our ex-president Zuma, um, who is refusing to go to a, a, a mandated hearing that he actually initiated when he was president um, called the state capture inquiry. And the inquiry is really to understand basically how he captured the state, capture as in used it, the resources for his own gains. And he refuses to go to... To the, to the commission. And so the commission chair has now said, well, you're going to go to court then. We are going to jail you. And he's asking the constitutional court to uphold the ruling and to and to essentially um, facilitate the ex-president going to jail. Um, any resonances here? Anyway, <laughs> so that's happening today. And, and there's no mass support for Zuma saying, oh, no, no. I mean, he does have a, a cabal of people who do support him, certainly, and there will be mass there will definitely be friction and tension around that. But I think generally in the population more broadly, there is a time and a place now saying it's it's enough. So the hope is that this may lead to more accountable um, politicians and more accountable governance. The problem is if we keep staying in lockdown, parliament is happening virtually. All of these mechanisms for accountability where you would meet your ward councillor or you would go and make an input into a town hall meeting are not taking place, you know. We don't even have parish Zoom calls. <laughs> Maybe we do. I don't know if you follow that in the UK, the parish Zoom call where they're all yelling at each other. Um, so there's just no mechanism where people are able to effectively input into into accountability processes, and that's my my concern with lockdown continuing as well. So at, the, at this present moment, I can't say that we are having any kind of political revolution like you may have seen in in the states. There's no mass push uh, for change. There's more, I think, at this moment, a, a kind of resigned, we've just got to get through this. And then hopefully the energy will come back. I want to remind everyone you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Fiona Anciano about COVID in South Africa and about the Lockdown Diaries project. And I want to circle back to that. Maybe um, we're almost up on time, but if you could tell us a little bit about what you plan now with the project, do you, do you plan to 
turn to it, to the same respondents or, or new ones, or write up what you have and, and maybe talk a little bit about if you want to mention the members of the, of the team who've contributed as well. Great, yes. So our plan is to write up. Um, <laughs> it's, it was so, we've been so busy. Um, we did all this research and we haven't put it into any kind of academic journals, although we have written up quite a lot of analysis on the website itself. And we have actually also put up a lot of the diary findings. Um, so hopefully others can use that too. You know, it's, 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 but obviously as academics, we know we have to publish in journals and we want to do that. So we're working on that. But what we're going to do is go back to the respondents, maybe not all 70 of them, but as many as we can and do in-depth qualitative interviews with them to contextualize. So we will then get uh, moving forward and we'll get it back. We, want, we know we want to get the history and we want to get the future from our, our diaries. And so that will also help us to deepen our research in a, in a much richer qualitative way. So we're still working on it. It's by no means a project um, that's come to an end. Um, so my team members, uh, SJ Kupenok from University of Edinburgh, uh, Meli Dubey, he's a PhD, soon to be a Dr. Dubey, I hope, um, at the University of the Western Cape. Botamelo Pupane, she's also doing her master's degree and she's now um, at a university in Sweden called the University of West, so I'm happy for her. And um, Mfundo Majola, who is uh, just completing his master's as well at, at uh, University of the Western Cape. So it was a great team. And, you know, that is also a huge learning for me. Any researcher can't do it on their own if you want to do this kind of research. You need people you trust and people who trust the people you trust to work with them. I wanted to ask if I just want to sneak in one small little final question just provoked by methodology because we have talked a lot I've talked with a lot of social scientists who have had to adapt their methods in real time and I'm really taken by your sort of WhatsApp model and your clearance your IRB clearance that you got in a week I don't know we're gonna to have to find out how you did that and, and figure out how to replicate that but um, will you go back or to what extent have has this um, maybe galvanized some thinking among you and the team that um, there are methods uh, that you get in the field quickly that that have merit that we might have dismissed in the past. I've talked to so many anthropologists who've said there's some aspects of this research I I really like and I think I'll take on board going forward. I don't know if you've had that response or can you just not wait to put the phone aside and get back into, you know, around the table face-to-face -face kinds of, of interview structures? Yeah, that's a really good question. If you'd asked me a year ago, would I ever want to be doing phone surveys or any kind of quantitative stuff? You know, I'd be like, no, it's not me. It's not me at all. And now I'm like, well, there's a real benefit to it. I think um, you can get a longitudinal set of data, which you can't get so easily if you're just going into the field. So I am desperate to go back into the field. I mean, I have been. I shouldn't have been during lockdown, but I've, I've snuck in there occasionally um, when, we, when we've had our lockdown eased. So I do think it is important to always... I don't think, let me put it this way, I don't think this research would have worked if we hadn't known our communities and hadn't already done research before in those areas and knowing the areas we were working in. So I don't think anyone could go in cold and use a WhatsApp diary type of method to get information from people if you didn't know the communities and the areas and the people and the networks in which you were engaging because you would have no context and that data would be too thin. You know, you would be getting three or four sentences, maybe a voice note. It's too thin to be able to analyze. Um, so that I would say was really crucial. And all five of us knew our participants. They were all anonymous. And sometimes we didn't know who exactly we were getting information from, but we knew the context, we knew the environment, we knew the general challenges, we knew the governance issues, we knew what was appropriate to ask and what wasn't. So without that background, the WhatsApp diary is a method I, I personally don't think would work very well. But would I do it again? Absolutely, I definitely would. I would always do it as a supplement to, to, to richer qualitative data, precisely for the reasons I've just given, because otherwise you miss too much context. Because nobody wants to give their life history on WhatsApp, let's be honest. <laughs> so, so you need to, um, to embed it more deeply in, in qualitative work. Um, but I would definitely use it again. I would, I would want to stress, though, that I don't think, I think it's too easy to use as, as an exploitative research tool. You know, when you go into a field and you do work, even if you don't give money, you can give lunch or some kind of reciprocal um, arrangement to just appreciate someone's time. And WhatsApp is a very cold relationship. And how do you appreciate someone's time? But they are taking time and thought and energy. So the cash voucher system that we had set up, it wasn't the easiest to administer. I had to do that. Ugh. But um, 
I strongly think it's good. And even if it's a token amount, I mean, we weren't giving a lot. We were giving the equivalent of, say, um, you know, $2, $3 a week. But it's symbolic and it means we appreciate your time. So I would definitely add that in methodologically. Want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls uh, live every weekday, usually at 5 p.m. Eastern time today at 5 p.m. Korea time. And tomorrow, Wednesday, we'll be back at 5 p.m. Eastern time. And I want to thank my guest, Fiona Anciano, for um, enlightening me about the situation in South Africa, but also talking about this really, really inventive lockdown diaries project. And um, Fiona, thanks for your time today. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's so interesting. And it's so great that people are interested in work you've done because often you think, does it just go into a big black hole somewhere and no one ever listens or reads? So it's great. And I think the project you're running is amazing. What a resource. And hopefully it's going to be there in 100 years for people to listen to. I appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say, and I, I feel exactly the same way. I want to um, wish everyone health and we'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern time.